started. I knelt to pray, but not for long. I had too much to do. Had to hurry off and get to work, for bills would soon be due. All through the day, I had no time to speak a word of cheer, no time to speak of Christ to friends. they just laugh at me, I feared. No time, no time, too much to do. This was my constant cry. No time to help someone in need, and at last, it was time to die. And when I came before the Lord, I came with downcast eyes, for I saw he held in his hand a book. It was the book of life. God looked into his book and said, Your name I cannot find. I once was going to write it down, but never found the time. The reason I'm starting with this is because there is this sense, I think, in Christian world that, um, and in fact, if, if I were going to name the one thing I think really impedes our relationship with God, is that we have this idea that there's God's world and then there's the real world. In other words, I go to church or I kneel to pray, and in that moment, I'm in God's world. And then I have to hurry off because the real world presses in. I have bills to pay. I have to do things. And maybe there's some things I have to do in the real world that maybe isn't so godly-like, and maybe I wouldn't necessarily want him seeing what I'm doing in the real world. And so I just kind of forget about him for a while. And I move on from the God world into my real world. And that's, I think, something that catches a lot of us. Uh, there's, a, there's actually an expression that comes from the Bible, the world where we live and move and have our being. Right? That's actually from the Bible in the book of Acts. And that's kind of the world where we live in, and that's our real world. And then we have God's world that we like to be in. We like to come here and praise and, and do those things. But um, then we leave it, and then we kind of have to leave some other things behind. I, I work with a lot of people in, in my day job, and uh, I work with Christians sometimes. Not, not usually. The tech world seems to be flooded with atheists. But there's this one guy I worked with, and uh, he's a Christian. And we're talking about a deal we're working on together. And I was a tech guy going in to kind of set everything up. And he was a sales guy going to bring down the clothes, you know. And so he was telling me, here's how we're going to pitch this. And here's how we're, you go in and tell them this. And I'm listening to him. And I said, but that's not true. Uh, well, okay, it's not true. But, but it's going to be necessary in order to get this deal. We'd set this up. Then I'll come in and we'll get the deal. And I said, oh, no. You know, I'm not sure I, that's not true. Now, by the way, in my career, there's been many times I didn't have that problem. But this time in my life, God was actually working on me. Am I lying? Okay, I don't lie. I would say I only give the truth scope. You know, I mean, I, this is like going to lie. But, you know, just kind of tilted a little bit here and there. And God was actually working in my heart. So when I had a Christian telling me, you need to go in here and tell this lie so we can close this deal, I was kind of like, I don't know. And I, he got exasperated with me. And he says, look, I understand, Christian. I go to church too. But there's the Christian church world and this is the real world. And here, you know, you have to kind of tilt it a little bit. And, and that's something I think that does happen in our lives. That we say, well, this is, this is fine that we're Christian, and I'll go repent later, but right now i got to go do this. It's like that old thing that uh, I, when I was a kid, I prayed for a bicycle, and I prayed and prayed and prayed, and I realized God doesn't work that way. So I stole a bicycle and just prayed for forgiveness. You know, that's the kind of idea. We're, we can ask for forgiveness later. I know I'm going to sin, God, but I'm going to do this now because it's necessary. And then later on, I'll go ahead and we'll have a, uh, we'll have a little prayer fest, and I'll repent. And you'll forgive me because it's what you do. And so what we do is we shift God into this little box in our lives, like a different room. 
There's actually a word for this. We do this a lot, not just with God, but with a lot of things. The word's a big one. It's compartmentalization. Where we start divvying things out. Like picture you've got a house, and then you just, it's like open concept, you know, a big open concept like they always do on HGTV. Big open concept house, no walls. But you go in, and you start splitting it up. And you start putting things in there. You put walls in there so you can put this in there so I don't have to look at it anymore. I, or I don't want this to mix with that, so I put walls up to keep them from coming together. It's amazing what we can actually do if we just have this compartmental system where I can, I can actually go and, and be a good family man and then go out and maybe have an affair. I've met people like that. I've counseled with people like that. That's made possible by the compartmentalization. They, they, they have these different compartments in their lives, and God gets a compartment as well. When I was starting my career, and again, I'm not talking this. For those of you who don't know, I don't get paid for this. This is a hobby, I guess. So I don't get paid for this, which, you know, sometimes I actually have people come up and say, oh, you know, today's sermon, not quite as good as last week's, Pastor. And I always tell them, yeah, you get what you pay for. So be careful there. My, my real world is the tech world. That's, one that gets, that's what pays me. When I started my tech career, I was a sales engineer. Now, I'm a techie, but I'd work with a sales department to help close deals. Very, very expensive deals. And so when I first got started, I remember I was out with a bunch of guys, um, and I know that there are women salesmen, but not in my company, they're were, they were all guys, and we're out, uh, and we had dinner together before the big you know, convention we were going to start. And we're sitting around dinner, and I don't know if you've ever hung around guys who sell million-dollar deals for a living, but they are just a different cat. They are really different. They're always on. They're always selling type A personalities, you know, and they're always competing about everything. And so that's what's going on. And we had a waitress who was kind of cute and knew that she was kind of cute and also knew that her tips would kind of be dependent upon how cute she was, you know, just enough. So she was flirting a little bit with the guys, which is like, you know, raving a red flag before bulls. And so before very long, a contest arose amongst the table, uh, started by these two guys, to see who could get her phone number before the meal was done. Now, I was new. I was just, that was my one of my very first trips out with everybody. And I guess it showed on my face because I was shocked because the two guys who suggested this contest were both married. I knew that. And they laughed. And they said, oh, look at Grice. Look at him. He's a babe in the woods. And he says, uh, you don't know about the 50-mile rule, do you? And I said, 50-mile rule? No, what's that? And the, one of the guys who was doing the contest, he says, it's this. He reaches over. And he takes his ring off his finger, his wedding ring. He said, uh, if it's more than 50 miles, he put it in his pocket. It's not cheating. All right? And then everybody laughed because it was just a joke. You know? Except it wasn't just a joke. Because every one of them, as I learned later, had a 50-mile rule of some sort. You know, it may not be they're trying to pick up waitresses, but they all had things they did at home that they would never do on the road. And the things they did on the road they would never do at home. It's a 50-mile rule, some level of distance, whatever that was. I'm telling you this story because, uh, you know, this whole series about the Jesus Razor is all these things that God brought to my attention that had to be decided upon and decisions that made some good, some bad, leading up to what eventually would become Spirit Chapel. So I'm in, this is probably going back to, I don't know, March maybe in 2013. I'm on my back deck and I'm doing my, my Bible study. And this story, this moment of the, of the dinner with those guys suddenly came back to my memory. I'm going to confess that sometimes my mind wanders during Bible study because my mind wanders during everything. 
I don't know if that makes me unrighteous or not, but it's true. Uh, but in this case, I didn't feel like my mind wandered. It's just like I thought this story somehow fit, but I couldn't figure it out because I'm looking at the Bible. Why why'd that story come back to my mind suddenly? And I started thinking maybe God's bringing it back to my mind. Maybe he has a purpose. And so just then I was asking, I said, God, did you bring this to my attention? This, you know, is this a sin I need to repent for? What's going on? And God spoke to my spirit. He said, no, I just want to remind you this time because you have a 50-mile rule with me. Now, God's everywhere, right? He's infinite, and I know you can't get 50 miles away from God. It was more of a time and distance thing, sometimes during the week, you know, like Sunday, but then come Monday, I'm starting to get a little bit further away from God, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday. Man, by the time Friday rolls around, I'm out with my friends. I kind of forget a lot of the things I said I was going to do on Sunday or promised I would never do on Sunday. You know, as I get kind of further away from, from that Sunday morning when I really had this moment where I felt God, I just kind of start moving away. It started when I was very young, in fact, because I'm a preacher's kid. And preacher's kid, man, we learn how to separate church life from real life real fast or you don't have any friends in school. I don't know how it is today. But, you know, when I grew up, there was still this idea that if you're a preacher's kid, that means you're goody-goody. And you, no one wanted to be around you. They're afraid you'd tell on them and stuff. And you couldn't do anything fun with anybody because, hey, we're all, you're the preacher's kid. We can't tell you, right? And you hated that. So, so you learn how to slip in and out of being the preacher's kid. I was good at it. I could be with my friends, and I could be doing one thing. And, man, I could go from there. My dad could pick me up. We could go to prayer meeting at church. And I'd slide right back into old King James for my prayers. You know, I just knew how to compartmentalize. I did it very fast. And I just kept doing it throughout my whole life. I just, kept, I just kept adding other compartments to it, you know. And so I had this time when I really just had a very clear definition in my mind. This is when I'm with God. This is when I'm not with God. And when I'm with God, I can do these things. And when I'm not with God, I can't. I know. You, this is funny. I, I did this time last night, too. I'm looking at you all, and you're looking at me like I'm crazy. Like, these shocked looks at your faces, right? And I don't know if you're sitting there thinking, man, how do you know that I'm doing that, too? Or you're sitting there thinking, how's this guy the preacher? I'm not sure which way you're going with that. I'm going to assume the second, and so you guys can sit back there and righteously judge me. I'm going to tell you about me, because I have good company with another guy in the Bible. His name's Simon Peter. Now, I should probably say as a little bit of a, of, of a disclaimer that what I'm about to tell you about Simon Peter isn't anything you want to read in the Bible. It's kind of interpretation. So, but, I, but I know guys. And when I read Simon Peter, one thing I love about Simon Peter, he's, he's a guy. I mean, he's just so honest about things. You know, that's what I love about Peter. He's right out there. And I know a lot of preachers like to make fun of Peter. But actually, Peter is a, not only a pivotal person in the Bible, but I think what some people kind of forget is he's a very good, loyal, faithful Jew when Jesus meets him. We kind of think that he wasn't. You know, we kind of think that maybe Peter was a sinful guy and like Jesus pulled him out of the gutter kind of a thing, but he wasn't. He was about as righteous as you could get as a Jew in those days. Because in those days, by the time the Pharisees got a hold of the, you know, the, the church and they added all these rules to it, and they literally stacked the deck. So if you're a blue-collar guy, you couldn't be fully righteous. If you were going to be fully righteous in those days, you had to be a professional Jew. You had to be a Sadducee or a Pharisee or a priest, rabbi. They could be fully righteous. But if you're a blue-collar guy, and I know I'm looking at a lot of us who are blue-collar people. This is Pittsburgh, right? If you're a blue-collar person, you could never be fully righteous. So you had to come to church, and you had to do 
the, the ceremonies to cleanse yourself so you could participate in church. And this was the cycle because you lived unrighteously because you would touch Gentiles. Like literally just if you brushed against a Gentile, you're unclean. And you also couldn't touch dead things, which is kind of hard when you're a fisherman, you know, because kind of a lot of things they deal with are dead. And if you touch dead things, you're unclean. All these kind of things made you unclean. So then you would have to go and you'd have to purify yourself through sacrifice before you could participate in the service. And that was how it was. So Peter was as righteous as he could possibly be. And we know this because he kind of gives us hints with some of the things he says. Later on in the Bible, uh, we're going today to talk about when Peter first meets Jesus. But later on in the Bible, we have this moment of, uh, we see into, into Peter a little bit because he has this vision. And his vision, uh, the vision is tempting him to eat unclean food, right? This actually shows up in Acts. And the voice comes and says, Peter, get up, kill some food and eat. And this is after he'd been fasting for some time, so he's very, very hungry. And Peter says this, by no means, for I have never eaten anything unclean, ever. In my whole life, no morsel of unclean food has ever touched my lips. Now, we think that means pork, but that meant a lot of things. That included shellfish. That included shrimp. And Peter's a fisherman. Do you, mind, do you know how many shrimp boils he must have walked by in his life and not been able to eat shrimp? Because that was considered unclean. He said, I never, ever did it. I'm thinking, man, Peter, you never had bacon-wrapped shrimp? I mean, come on. We all know how good that is, right? It's bacon-wrapped shrimp. That's my number one favorite food wrapped around my number three favorite food. Bacon wrapped shrimp is quite a morsel. Peter's never had it. He's completely righteous in that regard. Now, in the day that Peter lived, the other thing about it was, unlike this, this separation that I kind of created in my own mind, it was actually created for him in that temple in that day. In other words, there was this separation in the temple between God and us. It was there. It was part of the temple. It was something that was known as the veil, and the veil would sit in the temple between the people and the Holy of Holies. That's where God came. This goes all the way back to Moses' day. Now, I want to say that's never what God wanted. God never wanted this. This is what he designed it. What do you mean he didn't want it? He designed it because the people wouldn't do what he wanted. He wanted to be with the people. He wanted to come with all of the people. And they said, no, we're not doing that. When he comes and gives them Ten Commandments, he does it in thunder and lightning. And they're looking at God and all his power. And they say to Moses, you go see what God has to say. We'll just stay over here. And he says, no, no, no. God wants to meet with you. He wants to talk with you. He wants to be face to face, heart to heart with all of you. And they say, yeah, we'll just stay here. And uh, the reason they wanted to stay there, by the way, wasn't just that they're just being righteous and, oh, I don't think I'm worthy. It's they knew if they came next to God like that, like Moses did, they're going to have to stop sinning. They don't want that. I'd rather stay over here, thank you very much, and you go tell me what God has to say so I can keep sinning over here and occasionally listen to what God has to say. This is what's given away to the church. Right? I get a lot of you come up to me and ask me to pray for you about things that really you should be praying for yourself. You don't need me. But at that time they did because they had this veil and it separated them from the Holy of Holies. So that was the world that Peter grew up in. Now let me, let me show you the moment that Peter meets Jesus. Now there's, this shows up in the Gospels. I'm going to go for the Gospel of Luke. Now it actually shows up in Luke chapter 5. And I've always wondered if that was the first time Jesus met Peter. And if you want to get the full story, you actually have to back up into Luke chapter 4. 
because we really see what happened before this meeting. So I'm going to actually start there. So what's happened is this. Let me set the stage. He has just started his ministry. He's just spoken at the temple, and everybody's kind of getting to know this, this, this incredible speaker who's kind of turning Jerusalem on fire here in Galilee and all the area because he's a dynamic speaker. He speaks with authority no one's ever heard. Oh, and oh, by the way, he does miracles too. So he's kind of becoming the talk of the town really fast, right? He's kind of a little bit of a celebrity already. He speaks in the temple, and then we see this interesting thing. Uh, so as soon as he's done getting in the temple, he gets up and leaves the synagogue. And I love that Luke just goes, oh, and he went to Simon Peter's home. I went, oh, well, where did he meet Simon Peter? And I backed up to Luke chapter 3, 2, 1. He never does. There's, there's no meeting between him and Peter before this. But the Bible says, and then he walked over to Simon Peter's house. How did he know? I'll tell you how he knew. The Holy Spirit sent him there. Because he was getting ready to start his ministry, and he was going to select his 12 disciples, and the number one guy he's going to pick is the guy who's going to later become the rock of the church, Peter, Simon Peter. So the Holy Spirit, through word of knowledge, sends him to Peter's house. There's only one problem. Peter's not there. Whoops. The Holy Spirit get it wrong? Does <laughs> he need to check his dates? No, the Holy Spirit sent Jesus there for a purpose, to meet Peter, but Peter wasn't there, and the Holy Spirit knew it. And that sets up this whole thing. So watch what happens. So he gets there, he finds out that Simon Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And that's why Peter's not there. I'm not making a mother-in-law joke here, honestly. It's not like I can't stand that woman when she's healthy. I'm certainly not going to be here now. I'm out. He wasn't down at the bar with the guys. What happens is in those days, Peter's a blue-collar guy. You've got to remember that. In fact, Peter could walk right in here and root for the Steelers and get, fit right in. He was a blue-collar guy. He would have fit in Pittsburgh beautifully. But in those days, it was tough to be a blue-collar guy because Rome had conquered Israel. Now, as part of the deal, Rome let you live when they conquered you, but you had to pay them something called tribute, which is just a nice little word for tax. So they got taxed by the Roman government, plus they got taxed by the Israeli government. That was their lives. It was, it was a struggle. If you read any of the historical books, that's why there was always revolts. It was very, very difficult to make it as a working class person in Roman Empire because you're just taxed to death. In those days, everybody in the family worked. So the mother-in-law was living with them. That's not, a, not unusual at all. But I can tell you she had a job. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was cleaning fish. Maybe it was mending the, the nets. Maybe she took on extra work, mending sandals or something, doing laundry to make a couple more things. Maybe they sold stuff down the market. Like they would take fish and fillet it and go back down the market and sell filleted fish as a delicacy or something. She had a job. They all had jobs. Nobody sat around watching YouTube, you know, and get streaming on, binging on Netflix. There's none of that going on. No one had any spare time. You worked. You worked from the moment you got up to the moment you went to bed because otherwise you didn't eat. There was no welfare state. You worked or you starved. So what's going on here is his mother-in-law is sick. Well, that's a double hit. Because on one hand, she's not working anymore. So either someone else has to pick up her job, I have to hire somebody to pick up her job, or it's not getting done. And if there's any money she's supposed to be bringing in, she's not bringing it in anymore. On top of that, she's been sick for some time. And they have to pay physicians to come and look at her. They maybe need to buy some medicine. That, they don't have any kind of a savings to handle this kind of thing. There's no health care system for them. There's just Peter, the main provider of the household. I believe the reason Peter wasn't there was he picked up a third shift, right? Some of you guys, blue-collar guys, you know what that's like. Need some money. Well, I don't need to sleep as much as I am. 
eight hours. Who needs that? I'll go work. I'll do a third shift or a second shift. However, you moonlight. You pick it. That's what blue, that's what we all do, right? And so he said, well, I'm a fisherman. He probably fished morning and evening, typically. That's what typical fish. Now, he was a successful fisherman. He actually had a partner. They had boats. So he's probably several generations deep as a fisherman. He knew what he was doing. Well, I guess I'll go out at the night-night shift, the evening shift, the overnight shift, and, and catch some fish then. So that's where he is. He's out fishing all night long. We'll find that out in the next chapter. But what happens here kind of cracks me up. Because Peter gets, Jesus gets there. Hey, I'm here to see Simon. Simon's not here. He's out on the water. He's fishing. Oh, well, yeah, he had to make some more money because mom's sick. Oh, your mom's sick? Oh, I can handle that. Boom. He, he lays his hands on her, and the fever goes away. He actually rebukes it. Get out of her. And it just goes. This is like, wow, this is great. And then I love what happens next. And she immediately got up and waited on them. So clearly she's Italian, right? Because <laughs> as soon as she gets up, she goes, Jesus, thank you so much. You look skinny. Sit down. I'm going to get you some meatballs. You know, get some matzo. We're going to get some meat on those bones. Rabbi, you need to sit. You know, so immediately she starts feeding them. Here's, here's the interesting thing. Peter's out in the water because he's got a problem in his life. But the problem in his life is not that he doesn't have enough money. The problem in his life is his mom's sick. But he can't do anything about that. All I can do is go make more money. So he does what guys do. Well, I don't know anything about this, but I know how to fish. Guess I'll go out fishing. I just have to do what I can do in order to make ends meet. And so he goes out there. And uh, I'm just going to work harder, which, by the way, is kind of words my wife lived by. Everything can be solved by just working harder. You know, you think, you think there's a work ethic here. You should see the Soviet work ethic. You know, everything, just work harder. That's all. All you need to do is work harder. You can do that. Some of you have the same philosophy in life. Just work harder, right? Because you're from the base of the same area that she's from. And so, um, and, but the, I want to point it out because Peter's out there trying to solve the one problem he thought they, they had that really did. And sometimes that happens to us. We get tunnel vision. I got a problem. I need money. I literally had someone come to me once and said, Pastor, I need you to pray that God brings me. It was a, I can't remember now the figure, but it was odd. It was like $10,781.64. It was like really down to the penny like that. I said, really? That's an that's a oddly specific number. You know, I've done the calculations. That's what I need to get out of all of my debt. So if you could pray to God to do that, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to stand in front of the infinite God and tell him exactly the amount of money to give you? What is an ATM machine? What if you don't need money? What if that's really not your problem? Oh, I haven't, I've worked it out. Uh, money's my problem. <laughs> All I need is more money and everything will be fine. Everything won't be fine for Peter if he gets more money. He'll pay his bills, but his mom's still sick. What if she dies? In those days, it happened. You have a five, high fever one day, you're dead the next. This very easily could have happened. And then they really have a problem. So Peter's real problem isn't money, but that's all he can focus on. And that's his. But the ironic thing is the only man on the planet who could solve his real problem shows up at his house and he's not there. I wonder how many times we miss God showing up because we're not there. Because we're out trying to solve the problem by ourselves instead of waiting for the one who really can solve the problem to show up. Now I'm not blaming Peter here. I probably would do the same thing. But how often do we actually stand in front of a limitless God and try to limit him by our imagination and tell him what he needs to do for us. I mean, I know everybody says to make your prayer specific, <clears throat> but I don't know. I don't want to limit God. He's a lot more creative than I am. He can see things I can't see. 
Sometimes my problem isn't really the thing that I think my problem is. That's a side sermon, no charge for that one. Okay, let me move back to the story now. So, I don't know, I think Jesus may have spent the night there, I don't know, <laughs> but uh, he gets up and he goes on, and the next morning, we pick this up in Luke chapter 5, he's walking along and a crowd's gathering, because that's what happened, right? Because he's kind of a rock star at this point. You heal people, people follow you around, you know, trying to see if it's going to happen again. And he also is talking and, and, and teaching a radical new way of thinking about all of this, and people are interested in what he has to say. So this crowd's gathered, and they kind of push him in, and he gets down to the water edge. He's clearly looking for Peter, by the way. The only reason he can go from his house to where Peter is, he's clearly on a search for Peter, you know, like, where's Waldo? Where's Peter? I don't know if he had a little red cap on or not, but, you know, where's Peter? And so he gets him pushed down to the water's edge there, and so he says, I need to step back so I can speak to everybody. He looks, and he sees boats there, and he goes and gets in one of them, and it just so happens that the boat he gets in is Peter's. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I used to crew on a Pearson Flyer in Texas. If you want to get the boat owner's attention, go climb in the boat. You will instantly get all the attention of the boat owner. So as soon as he climbs in the boat, Peter's like, whoa, 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 hey, hey, hey. Now, where was Peter? I'm going to tell you in a minute where Peter was. Bring up, that's my boat. <laughs> and you come on, you know, good, good, good. Now I got a captain. Come on in. I need to get pushed out a little bit so I can preach to the crowd. And so Peter just does it. I mean, I don't know if he's just so tired, you know, or, or mesmerized, or maybe he's just cl clearly interested in what this Jesus guy has to say, but he's going to take time out of his problems to listen to, Peter, to Jesus preach. I wish we had Jesus' sermon. I wish somebody had thought to write that down, because you know he was preaching to Peter the whole time. <laughs> Peter's right there. You know he's actually preaching to Peter. He's talking to the crowd, but he's preaching to Peter, because it really must have affected Peter's heart. We can see that, kind of what happens next. So he goes all in, and then when he's all done preaching, the crowd disperses, and he sits down in his boat. Now, this boat's empty. There's no fish in here at all. He sits down, looks around. There's a fishing boat. Hey, let's go fish. Doesn't that sound like fun? Let's go fish. And so um, let's just go on out in the deep water and let down the nets. Let's go fishing. How about that? This is a fishing boat. You're a fisherman. Let's go do now watch what Peter says next. Master, we worked hard all night, and we caught nothing. Nothing? All night? I I'm going to tell you this never happened in Peter's entire life. Now, when I say Peter was a fisherman, and he was fishing on Lake Genesaret all night, what some of us think is he was standing there, you know, on the shore. He's got a little igloo cooler there with some yingling in it maybe a koozie. <laughs> he's got this big pole and a little stand to hold it, you know, and he's sitting there drinking the, drinking the yingling and watching the, the sun set on the horizon and the moon come up, and that's what Peter's doing. No, that's not how Peter fished. Peter was a blue-collar fisherman, and it was his business. This wasn't a hobby. Now, if it's a hobby, some of you are fishermen. I'm not. I don't have the patience for it. But some of you are fishermen. You can go out, and you can fish, and you can catch nothing. You know, I've, I'd, I'd never gone through that, but I've seen the bumper sticker. A bad day fishing beats a good day at work any day, right? I've seen that bumper sticker. You can catch nothing. You're, oh, well, no, no big deal. <laughs> I still got to drink my yinglings, and so everything's fine. That's not Peter. Peter can't catch nothing. He catches nothing they don't eat. So he doesn't put it to chance with one little pull on a worm. He's out there in his boat with a net. Now, the way this net thing works is he takes a net and he throws it out in deep water. You know, Jesus said we're going to go out to deep water. And that net is weighted 
so it falls all the way down, probably about 20, 30 feet. And then they grab the other line from the other side of it and they pull, and that makes the net kind of do this and makes a little tiny catch, like a parachute. And they start pulling that through the water as they're pulling it up to the boat. And you pull steady. You, you can't jerk it, because if you jerk it, it, it does this weird thing and, it, and all the fish will get out. So you have to keep steady pressure on it and you pull. If any of you have ever done water aerobics, you know what that does. You're pulling this net against the water and it is resisting you. That's just the net. If there's fish in it, it's really resisting you. And the whole time you're pulling that thing steady. He doesn't have a winch in that boat. He's using his arms and his back and he's pulling that in as steady as could be, real slowly and steady. And it is all the way up. By the time he gets it there, his arms are burning. If you would have met Peter, man, he would have been jacked. His back would be, his shoulders would be cut. He worked for a living. And then you pull that net up and you dump the fish into the boat. That's how they fished. And what he's saying is, I pulled that net up a hundred times and there was never a fish in it. Man, that's a night. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever worked swing shift. Some of you have, I know, actually, because some of you have talked to. You know what that's like, the swing shift? That's what he's working, right? He, he grabbed an hour or two of sleep and went right back to work, to work all night. And he's trying to solve his problem. His problem will be solved by catching fish, only nothing's coming. You know, by about the 90th time he threw that empty net back, he doesn't even think there's going to be anything there. He's just angry enough at the water. He's just pulling that thing through. I can't believe there's no fish here. And he's tired and he's exhausted. And at some point, he pulls that net up and he sees the sun coming up over the horizon. Have you ever been there? We worked all night and didn't accomplish what you set out to accomplish? Because unfortunately, I have been more times than I can count. Because my trade's tech and programming and we solve problems and sometimes we don't solve problems. We just work all night. <laughs> And we don't solve anything. That's a miserable feeling. Because not only are you really tired, and not only are you frustrated because you've worked and nothing's happened, nothing's working, but you realize, I should have just gone to bed. I could have slept. For as much as I've accomplished sitting here, I could have just slept. And you know Peter's thinking that. I could have just slept. This accomplished nothing all night long. And then you get that, that, that thing that feels like sand in your eyes. Those of you who worked all night, you know what I'm talking about? And you get that headache that working all night always brings you. And I don't know about you guys, but I got this little hum in my head that only I can hear. Oh, that's miserable. There's nothing more miserable than working all night and accomplishing nothing. And I don't have to do it like he had to do it, where he was worn out and exhausted and frustrated. And he's coming back in. And he, now what he's doing when, Peter, when Jesus comes along is he's cleaning his nets. From what? From seaweed, from sticks. He didn't catch nothing. He just caught no fish. And then there are some going to be torn. You have to tie it. You have to clean it and lay it out. Because if you don't take care of your nets, your nets will break. You can't afford to have them break. That's all he's trying to do and get home. So he can grab a couple hours of sleep and come back again. And along comes Jesus with the crowd. That's, all, that's what's happened here. He says, I've been all night out there. And I caught nothing. And he's probably mystified by that. How in the world do you catch nothing all night long? How do you work your job that you know how to do and nothing goes right? See, sometimes we need to learn that unless God's with us, we're not solving our problems by running off on our own to do it. There's a psalm, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Wow, I thought that uh, 
not early to bed, early to rise. It's, it's, it's in vain, though, that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxiousness. He gives his beloved sleep. Jesus showed up. I want you to catch this. Jesus showed up the night before so Peter wouldn't have to go out on the water. If he just waited, Peter would have given him, and Peter would have had sleep. Jesus gives his beloved sleep. But sometimes we go out and we get so caught up in what we're doing, we can't see any other way. And we just go to work. We're going to solve this ourselves. But here's what I know. Somehow that sermon touched Peter because even though he'd spent all night futilely, even though he's mad that lake already, he says this. He says, but at your word, I will do what you say. I have no idea why. I don't know why you want to go out as a tourist to my boat and catch some fish. Um, I'm a professional fisherman. I can tell you they ain't biting. <laughs> There's nothing there right now. But you know what? Since you said that, we'll go out. So they go on out to the deep water. And the way the Bible describes this, as soon as Peter throws his net in the water, it hasn't sunk more than two feet. All of a sudden, fish are in it. Something he hasn't seen all night. And they start pulling to the point where he can't even hold it. His net's threatening to break. He calls to his partner, you're not going to believe this. I got a net full. I need help. And his partner jumps on his boat and comes out to, to help him because there's so many fish in the net, he can't pull it up. He's never seen this either. He's never had so many fish in his net he couldn't pull it. They pulled up and watch this. It fills both boats and the boats begin to sink. This is impossible, by the way. This can't happen. This is an impossibility. That net is sized to that boat. You can't sink a boat by bringing a fish in, but that had to be too big of a net for the boat. Peter knows how big his net needs to be. You don't pull a net bigger than you have to have. But he's sinking now. I think Jesus is literally multiplying the fish as they're coming in the boat. He's just messing with them now, right? And it's filling up and, and everything. Now, watch what happens. When Peter looks at this, and he knows, because he's a professional fisherman, that what he sees in his eyes is impossible. This, this can't be. Forget the fact that last night I caught nothing and here they all are. I can't have this many fish in my boat. Not just my boat, my partner's boat. With one pull of a net? Are you kidding me? This is impossible. And so now Peter looks up and he says this. He sees it. He falls down Jesus' feet and he says, Get away from me, for I am a sinful man. I'm too, I'm too unrighteous to have you with me. But wait a minute. How is he sinful? He keeps the law doesn't he? He does, he does all the different sanctification things. He, he has never eaten unclean food. He, he stays away from all the things that make him unclean. And yet he's saying, no, 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 no. Uh, I'm too sinful to have you in the boat with me. Because Peter realizes something that I don't think we do, that he was in the presence of the Holy of Holies. There's supposed to be a veil between us. I don't know exactly who you are, but this didn't happen naturally. The power of God's in this boat, and it didn't come from me, and it must come from you, and you are way too righteous to be associating with somebody like me. See, this is what happens when God breaks down that wall between us and him. And it's interesting to me that when he went to call Peter, he used his job to do it. Listen, a lot of uh, uh, women, I don't know this is, I think, different for women, but with guys, we are our job. People ask you, if two guys meet in a party or something, within five minutes, the question, so what do you do, comes up. Right, guys? And then you say what you do for a living because what you do is who we are in our minds. A lot of times, men get their identity from their jobs. 
What do you do? And what Peter was, was a fisherman. And what Jesus was saying is, no, you're not. You're so much more than a fisherman. You just don't know it. And the reason you're stuck being a fisherman is because you try to keep me in the temple behind the veil. But I am here right now, and I am going to tear down the veil. Eventually, Jesus will literally tear down the veil of the curtain. Because the curtain separates the Holy of Holies from the people. He will literally do that before his, his time on earth is finished. He's doing it right now for Peter. There's no separation between us anymore. Things are changing. I'm here now in the boat. Have you tried to keep God in a separate place in your life? I would say that the number one reason people get, like, I tried that Christian thing and it didn't work is because they tried to keep God separate. They had God's life and my life, and I keep them separate. And I'm telling you, if you try that, you will fail as a Christian. You'll get discouraged. This Christianity thing doesn't work for me. I hear other people talk about it. I guess it works for them. It doesn't work for me. And it's because of that, this artificial barrier we build up in our life between God's world and our world. See, there's something that Jesus knew that he had to teach Peter. And this is, this is a big problem of compartmentalization. And we all think it works. We do it. We, we work on it. I think guys do it even better or more frequently than women do. We have a tendency to compartmentalize everything. And, and we think it works, but it really doesn't. And the reason is because if there's a fire in the kitchen, the whole house burns down. That's the problem. All those compartments, they're fake. The reality is you're one person. That's it. You don't have a God part of your person and, and a world part of your person. You have one person. The question is, who is that dedicated to? I have one person. What am I doing with it? That's, that's really it. Because... Jesus came to tear down the veil. And, and we may think that we got it all worked out and we got him in his compartment and we're in ours, but he sees it. You understand that, right? Psalm 98, you have set our iniquities, he could say sin before you. Our secret sins are in the light of your presence. God saw me no matter how many miles I was away from church. He saw every sin that I ever committed. He was there. Just because I kind of closed my eyes and pretended he wasn't didn't make him not there. He was always there. Because I see every sin you commit. You understand that, right? Every time you decide I'm going to go do this, I'm right there when you make that decision. I'm right there when you do it. And I'm right there later when you make excuses for it. I'm there through the whole thing. There's nothing between you and me. In fact, what Paul really said in Acts was this. In him we live and move and exist. In him we live and move and exist. Peter, you can't even catch a fish without me. You think you're a fisherman? You even can't catch a fish without me. But I'm going to show you some things about fish that are going to amaze you before we're done. You know, every time, everything you do, everything you can do, every skill you have, every, your strength, your youth, your, your agility, your, your abilities, every skill you have comes to you from God. If he removes his blessing, you'll be like Peter in a boat, throwing that thing in the water and pulling up nothing. Jesus came to tear down the veil. And it's already torn down. So Peter had an excuse. I don't. Because it's already gone. There's no veil. Uh, that, that's just a, a Jedi mind trick that you're playing with yourself. There is no veil. There's no compartment that can hold God. It's really simple. You know, life is simple. We make it complicated. It's really simple. Either Jesus is completely in your life or he's not there at all. Would you please pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll give us a new understanding that you can't.